Good morning, church. You've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do. Please turn in them to Revelation chapter 7. Got some new faces with us that weren't with us last week, and the rest of us have slept seven times since we were last in this book. So, last week we covered the first half of chapter 7. This week we'll cover the second half in verses 9 through 17. In the first half, John sees four winds from the four corners of the earth ready to come down to earth and bring destruction. But there are four angels that hold those four winds back. There's another angel that comes with the rising of the sun in the east and tells those four angels, do not send those winds until we have sealed the servants of God. And then John says that he hears the number of those who are sealed, and the number was 144,000. And he goes on to list 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. My conclusion from last week is that these 144,000 are not the 144,000 from ethnic physical Israel, but they are representative of the spiritual Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. So these are 144,000 Christ followers, and we understand that number, again, symbolically and representative of the church throughout the ages. And so my understanding of last week's passage in the first half of the chapter is not that this is some kind of specific end-time event that will happen, that after the sixth seal that there will be 144,000 who come to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, I don't understand this passage to be describing any particular end-time event. It's simply a part of this vision that Jesus gives to John as a picture of the church. That's what this was. It was a picture of the church lining up in formation, preparing as if for battle. And I understand that the meaning of that picture to be the church preparing for hard times, preparing for tribulation, for the four winds, if you will, to be sent to the earth. Whether the four winds represent current tribulation in our day and during the church age or whether that tribulation comes later at the end times doesn't really matter what matters is the seal the church will endure is and will endure tribulation but the difference maker is that the church endures that tribulation with the seal of god that that uh, that fifth angel had that's put on these servants the seal as we talked about last week is representative of the seal of the holy spirit that is ours in salvation that we who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his bodily resurrection as our only hope for rescue from certain and deserved punishment for our rebellion against God, we who have so placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, we now have the seal of God on our foreheads, figuratively, and because of that, we are assured that no matter how bad it gets, God will protect us spiritually and ensure that we will persevere to the very end. As we noted last week, that which John hears in the first half of the chapter, he now turns around and sees with his eyes in the second half of the chapter. 
In verse 4, John says that he heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. But now in verse 9, we're told that after this, he looked and behold a multitude, a great multitude that no one could number. And so it's my understanding that these two groups in chapter 7 are one and the same. That they are two separate visions of the same group at different times and in different settings. And that they are both representative of the church. We saw last week that the physical ethnic Israel is representative of the spiritual Israel, the church. But here this week in the second half of the chapter, we see that John is even more explicit that he's talking about the church here. This group that we're going to look at today in the second half is wearing white robes, representative of righteousness. And we're later told in the story the the reason why they're white is because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. A clear reference to their faith in Christ and His blood shed on the cross as their only hope for forgiveness. And so these are both pictures of the church. First, that of the church preparing for tribulation. And now, in the second half of chapter 7, the church celebrating their salvation and victory through that tribulation. Now, if you were here last week and you disagreed with my uh, description and and identity of who the 144,000 are, that's okay. You're in good company. As we talked about last week, there's a lot of different schools of thought as to who that group is. And we don't have to agree on that. Their identity is secondary, if not tertiary. What's most important in those first eight verses is the seal on their foreheads, which symbolically represents God's protection that God God promises that he will protect his own through any tribulation. He will protect them from spiritual harm. The seal was their assurance that they belonged to God, that God owned them, and that God would ensure that all of his children made it through the tribulation that was coming. So the seal that we saw last week was a promise that was made. And what we'll see this week in the second half is that God has kept his promise. So look, let's look at Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9 and going through the end of the chapter. Church, this is God's word. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. 
For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You so much for the privilege of gathering as Your people to worship You, sing praises to You, and now, Father, to turn to Your Word in that same spirit of worship that You might speak to us. And Father, I pray that's exactly what happens this morning. I ask in humility that you would remove me from any attention and any focus. Father, that we, your people, would center ourselves on what you have to say to us through your word. And may your word bring the fruit that it promises. May it this morning bring an encouragement to those who need to be encouraged in the midst of trial and suffering. Father, may it be a word of warning to those who stand outside the family of God. And may it be a great call to live a life worshiping you. We thank you for this word and pray that you'd speak to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the central content, as we see, of this second half of chapter 7 is about this great uncountable multitude. And so we need to ask some questions about them. First of all, who are they? Secondly, what are they doing? And thirdly, and probably most importantly, why does Jesus give John this part of the vision and have him write it down in his account of this vision so that we have it in the book of Revelation in the scriptures for us to read today? And as we wrestle with that third question, we're going to arrive at some implications of this vision and some application to our lives. So first of all, who are they? Well, we've already established that they're believers, that this is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. But we see a number of other things that John tells us in this vision about this great uncountable multitude. Secondly, we learn that they're numerous. There are a lot of them. He says it is a, a great multitude that no one can count. And so uh, there's a lot of them. How many of them? We don't know because no one can count them, right? But if we understand the church to be the true spiritual Israel, the Israel of faith today, then what we have here is a fulfillment of God's promises about Israel even going back to his promises to Abraham. Remember when we studied the book of Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God made his covenant with Abraham, and he promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then he says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families, all the tribes, all the clans, all the families of the earth will be blessed, Abraham, through you, through your seed. Later in Genesis 15, God brought Abraham outside of his tent at night and he had him look up to the stars. And he said to him, look toward heaven and number the stars, Abraham, if you are able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. In other words, your offspring, Abraham, will be more numerous than the stars in the night sky outside your tent. When God gave Abraham the sign of the covenant in Genesis 17, he said, Behold, my covenant is with you, 
and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So it wasn't limited to just Israel there. It says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, which means father, but your name shall be Abraham, which means a father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And so these promises that God made to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, a great uncountable number, now is being fulfilled in the vision that John is given of this great uncountable multitude in heaven. But the Abrahamic promise that God made to Abraham is not just about the number. It's also about the diversity within that number. Again, Genesis 12. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the tribes, all the clans, all the peoples. Genesis 17, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. See, from the very beginning, God's plan to redeem sinners back to himself was always a global plan. His mission was always a global mission. And its target was always the nations, all the clans, all the peoples. And of course, we see Jesus passing on this mission to the church in Matthew 28 when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, all tribes. And we have the fulfillment of that mission here in Revelation chapter 7. And John sees this great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And so this was a diverse multitude. Church, heaven is going to be the most multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual, multinational, multiracial situation we've ever been a part of in our entire lives. According to what John sees here, race and culture and ethnicity will not disappear in heaven. Because he notices that they're, that, that they're from all the tribes and all the races and all the cultures. He notices the difference. And yet, of course, there are no haves and have-nots. Imagine that, church. People from every tribe, every race, every ethnicity. And there will be no haves and no have-nots. And there will be no, uh, no group that is superior and no group that is inferior. There's a good chance that if you're a part of the majority race in this culture, you won't be in the next. And so if there is, just a word of warning, if there is any part of us that has any problem with any aspect of a multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic setting down here, then we've got a problem with God's plan in the new heaven and the new earth. But the diversity of this group in the second half of chapter 7 also tells us what our target should be in missions. Our target is all the nations. He says a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. Not a single one is left out. According to the Joshua Project, there are 17,406 people groups in the world. Not nations, not geographic, political nations, but linguistic, ethnic groups. 17,406 of them. Of that, 7,401 of them are considered unreached. 
by the gospel. The definition of unreached means that there are less than 2% evangelical in that culture. So that means that 41.8% of the world's population is unreached. That equals about 3.27 billion people. So what does that mean? That means that if you're a part of one of these 7,401 people groups, that you could be born and live your entire life and never have any contact with, the, with a gospel witness of any kind. And yet, each of those people groups, all 7,401 of them, are going to be a part of this Revelation 7 picture. Of those unreached people groups, missiologists also want, like to identify another group within that. And they call them frontier unreached people groups. A frontier unreached people group is a people group that has less than 0.1% Christian. Not just evangelical, but less than 0.1% Christian. And has absolutely no evidence of any self-sustaining gospel movement that is trying to reach them. That means no church, no missionary working on them, and no missionary effort seeking to bring the gospel to them. There are 4,994 people groups that are considered frontier. That equates to 1.98 billion people. Church, if the picture that we have here of the new heaven and the new earth includes all nations, all tribes, all peoples, and the current picture today is all nations and all peoples except 4,994 of them, then certainly we see that we've got our work cut out for us as the church and where our target needs to be in missions. What else do we know about this great multitude Fourthly, we're told that they have Jesus' righteousness. We've seen this already. They're wearing white robes. The white robe is symbolic of righteousness. And the elder later tells us why their robe is white. He says that they've, been, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now think about that. What an interesting way to describe how a robe gets white. They had to be washed in blood. The reason we wash clothes is because they're dirty. We don't wash clean clothes. We wash dirty clothes. And so these robes were previously dirty. They were stained with sin, but they were washed. And when they were washed, they weren't washed in soap and water. They were washed, we're told, in the blood of the Lamb. And now, as a result of that, they are white. Symbolic of righteousness so so how do these folks get this righteousness not by being a good person not by trying hard to please their god no they got their righteousness from jesus they only got their righteousness by washing their robes in the blood of the lamb we too church we need to be cleansed we need to be washed because we too are dirty we are stained with the dirt of our own sin. But we can't clean ourselves up with soap and water. We can't remove the stain of sin by trying to be a good person and, and trying real hard to please God and do the things that He asks. No, we can only be cleansed by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. 
This is what John, Paul made abundantly clear in the book of Romans. We can only be cleansed by coming to faith in Christ, who went to the cross in our place and paid the price that we deserve. When we trust in Christ alone to save us from what we deserve, when we trust in his finished work on the cross, he washes away the guilt of our sin and he makes us clean through his own blood. This very same John wrote in his first epistle in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then our robes become white because of the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what we see in this picture here. Every single one of these in this great multitude is wearing a white robe. And it's on the basis of that white robe that they are admitted entrance into this place. Nobody gets in who doesn't have a white robe. And so parenthetically, ask yourself, do you have it? Do you have that white robe? Are you sealed as we talked about last week? Do you have that white robe that awaits you? The righteousness of Jesus, not your own righteousness. Paul said our righteousness is filthy rags. Do you have the righteousness of Christ? Two more things that we know about this great multitude Number one, we know that they're celebrating. They're holding palm branches, which is symbolic of a celebration of victory, triumphant victory. It's just like the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. This great multitude in Revelation 7 is waving palm branches like they did, celebrating victory. What victory are they celebrating? Well, that gets us to the sixth And final thing I want us to note about this group, and that is that they have come out of the great tribulation. That's what they're celebrating. That's the triumph that they're celebrating, that they've come out of the great tribulation. This comes directly from one of the 24 elders in verse 14. One of those elders asked John, who are these who are wearing these white robes? Um, and, And John, of course, he doesn't know. But he's sure that the elder knows, and so the elder explains to him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, there has been a lot of ink spilled on whether or not this phrase, the great tribulation, refers to some kind of specific end-time tribulation, or whether it refers in a general way to the tribulation that the church has been enduring between the first and second advents of Christ. Personally, I don't see sufficient evidence in Scripture, and particularly in the book of Revelation, that the phrase, the great tribulation, is some kind of technical title for a specific part of end-time tribulation. I just don't see that in this book. However, neither can I bring myself to conclude that this is talking about general tribulation, that the church has been enduring throughout the church age. And the reason why I can't bring myself to that is because of the definite article, the. The elder does not say, these are the ones coming out of great tribulation. Instead, he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And so I do understand this to refer to a tribulation that is unlike any other tribulation that the church has experienced. 
that it is somehow greater, more intense, more violent. Jesus prophesied about such a time in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. Now in the context of Matthew 24, Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which itself points forward to a future time of great tribulation. But the way that Jesus describes this future time of great tribulation, it certainly sounds like something that is very different than all of the other tribulation that the church has endured throughout the ages. Listen to what he says in verse 21 of Matthew 24. Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, and then he he describes it, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And personally, I just can't find myself understanding that to refer just to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., I see it referring to a future time of tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And to me, that matches what we see the elder describing here as he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. George Ladd writes this, the great tribulation will be but a concentration of the same satanic hostility which the church has experienced throughout her entire existence when Satan in one final convulsive effort tries to turn the hearts of God's people away from their Lord. And so I take this to be a reference to Uh, Christ followers who have come through this great tribulation. And and I take this to mean something that is at the very end. Because what the elder goes on to describe, he uses language that matches what we know to be descriptive of the new heaven and the new earth in the final state. Listen to the closing verses of this chapter, verses 15 through 17. Therefore, they... Speaking of the great uncountable multitude, the church of the ages. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on his throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, when we get to Revelation 21 and 22, we're going to see some language that's very similar to what we just read. For example, in Revelation chapter 21, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. And then John hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's just a sampling. We'll see a lot more when we get to those chapters. But to suffice it to say that the language of verses 15 through 17 of Revelation 7 match up very well with what we see in Revelation 21 and the beginning of 22, as John gets this vision of the final state in the new heaven and the new earth. So what we have here, in my estimation, are those who have come through this great time of tribulation and are now populating the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I will say parenthetically 
that this certainly appears to be describing a time of tribulation that is present in the church today, that the church is going through today and continues to grow in intensity and grow in violence as we get nearer to the end, culminating in a final rebellion by Satan. And these believers here are coming out the other end of that and they're coming into the final state. And there's no mention here of any thousand-year interval between those two states. There's just tribulation, and then there is the final state. But perhaps that's just because this is apocalyptic literature, and Jesus hasn't yet gotten to that part of the story, which he will in chapters 19 and 20. And so for the fine amillennialists among us, don't get too excited. I haven't jumped ship quite yet. So that's what we know about this group. They're, they're, They're believers in Christ. There's a lot of them. They're like the promise to Abraham, like the sands of the seashore, like the stars in the sky. They're uncountable. They're a diverse group from every nation, tribe, language, and people. They have the Lamb's righteousness. They're wearing the white robes that were made white because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're celebrating with palm branches a victory, and that victory is that they have come out of the great tribulation. Now we've got to wrestle with the question, well, what are they doing? Well, that's simple, right? They're worshiping. They're worshiping God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Pick up the action at the second, in the second half of verse 9. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, now what is this salvation that they're shouting about? Well, friend, it's the, it's the fullness of what it means to be saved. All that is encompassed in our rescue from sin and death is wrapped up in that word. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That new life in Christ, that that regeneration is part of this salvation that belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Paul reminded the Corinthians of the past, present, and future sense of our salvation. He said, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And that past, present, and future sense of our salvation in Christ is part of what it means, the salvation that belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that predetermining of our salvation, that calling to salvation, that justification of our salvation, and certainly that glorification of our salvation is part of what they're singing about. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Add to that, add to that their salvation 
through the tribulation. Now, mind you, that, that if these are coming out of an end-time tribulation, consequently, that means that they died in the, tri- in the, the tribulation. So how can we say that they were saved through the tribulation? As we said last week, mark it down, church. We are never promised physical protection from tribulation. But we are always promised spiritual protection through tribulation. And so even if these are martyrs, they worship God and say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the land. But finally, and most importantly, if we locate this scene at the end of the times, in the new heaven and the new earth, then that means that not only were they protected through that tribulation, but they were also spared the final judgment. You see, at the very end, there's going to be what we will learn about a great white throne judgment where. All sin and unrighteousness will be dealt with justly. And those wearing white robes that are made white because they're washed in the blood of the Lamb will see that their sin was already dealt with. Their sin was already covered over and atoned for through the blood of Christ. Their sin debt was paid for through His work at Calvary. All others... All others will receive a just judgment. But those with white robes will see that Jesus already bore the judgment that they deserved. And so they will cry out with loud voices. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. At the end of chapter 6, we saw a foreshadowing of that final judgment. And we saw that it was going to be so bad, that it's going to be so bad, that the unregenerate of that day will, will cry out to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them so that they might escape it. But they will not escape it. And when they are subjected to it, they will say at the very end of chapter 6, for the great day of their wrath, speaking of the wrath of God and the Lamb, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? As we said last week, chapter 7 gives us a picture of who can stand in the final judgment. Who can stand in that day? Only those who are sealed by God and are wearing white robes. And church, the only appropriate response for those in that day who are so sealed and who are wearing white robes, the only appropriate response for sinners who didn't get what they deserve. Instead, they got gracious salvation. The only appropriate response is worship. Pure, unadulterated, self-forgetting celebration of God's victory over sin and death. And we won't be alone in our worship of God in the final state. Our our voices will be joined by a chorus of angels and, and great angelic beings. Look at verses 11 and 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. The word Amen means this is true. Let it be so. Today we might say the word, Yes. 
Yes, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. These powerful angelic beings, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and we're told all the angels of heaven, every single one of them, fall down on their faces and worship God. And their worship is verbal. They say it out loud here. Whether it was in song or in spoken word, it was audible. John heard them speak a, a sevenfold ascription of worship, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might forever and ever. And then they add the postscript, amen. Yes, let it be so. They're worshiping. So the final question for us to deal with is, why is this in the Bible? Why does Jesus give John this particular vision? What is the redemptive hope here? What is the purpose behind this vision being encapsulated in the book? And this is where we'll discover some of our application of this passage, four points in particular. And as we unpack them, we need to be reminded, what is the purpose of the book of Revelation? We've said it is to equip the church to persevere through tribulation to equip the church to persevere through tribulation so how might this vision of this great uncountable multitude before the throne do that how might this vision equip the church to persevere through tribulation first of all i think what we have here is a word of encouragement the church should be encouraged by this reminder that those who are sealed by God are saved by God. The first century church who read John's revelation would be encouraged by this, even though they were enduring great tribulation at the time. Even though the tribulation would come, if they had the seal of the Holy Spirit, they knew and they could be confident that God would protect them through the tribulation, spiritually if not physically. Even though it might get really bad, even to the point of their death, they would walk away from this vision with the confidence that they would also be a part of that great uncountable multitude. Church, we don't know what tribulation awaits us in our lifetime. We just know it awaits us. Part of living in a fallen world, part of living as a follower of Christ, we will endure suffering and trial. But if we have put our faith in Christ then we have been sealed. And there's a white robe that awaits us. And we will be saved. Not just, not just we are saved as a present reality. That's great. But we will be saved. Finally, completely, ultimately, and eternally. May this be an encouragement to us, church, as we face the tribulations that may lie ahead of us. Secondly, this is a call to global missions john sees a great multitude that no one could out, could count from every nation from all tribes people and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb but we know that there are thousands of tribes and peoples who are yet to be reached with the gospel and we've got to ask ourselves who is going to reach them they're going to be reached we see them in the revelation 7 picture who's going to reach them and as the church of Jesus Christ, we have to admit, whose responsibility is it to reach them? Well, it are, it's ours. 
It's the church's responsibility to reach all 4,994 of those frontier unreached people groups. So what is your individual responsibility within that? It's either to send or to go. So which one is it for you? Thirdly, I see here a stern warning to the unsaved. If you don't have the seal, then there's not a white robe that awaits you. And if that's the case for you when Jesus comes back, then you will not be in this scene that we see in Revelation 7. You'll be in another scene. And let this be a sobering warning to you as I read about this other scene in Revelation 20. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friend, if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from what you deserve, then you are in an unspeakably perilous predicament. Will you surrender and come to faith in Jesus now, today? Or will you, come, will you surrender to Jesus later and be thrown into the lake of fire, as John sees here? Either way, you will surrender to Jesus. This is a warning to the unsaved, and if that describes, if, describes you, I beg of you, I beg of you, Place your faith in Christ alone to rescue you. And then fourthly and finally, I see here an invitation to worship. Those who have been saved by God's grace through Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection cannot help but respond in worship. I sometimes hear people say, I don't really get into worship I don't get much out of singing. We need to be reminded it's not about us. It's about the God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And they are worthy of worship. And if we truly see what we've been saved from and how our salvation is all of God, all of it belongs to Him, none of it's our doing, then we will have no thought of what we get out of worship. We will respond to him in genuine, heartfelt, self-forgetting worship. We will figuratively, if not literally, fall on our faces and cry out with loud voices, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we are grateful that you've included this passage in your word to us, that you have revealed to us this picture of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ of the ages, assembled before you in the first half of the chapter, ready for the tribulation, and then the second half of the chapter, celebrating the victory as you 
have seen the church through it and have welcomed her into your presence in the new heaven and the new earth. What an encouragement to be reminded of this as we face trials in our day, as we face the suffering that is in our current time and the time which may soon come to pass. And we are thankful, Father, that we can look forward to this day when we are reunited with you in the new heaven and the new earth. What a glorious future awaits us with you. Until then, Lord, help us to live lives of worship, not just with our lips, but with our lives, and lead us to that global mission to take this good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ, to all the nations, including those that currently don't have any gospel witness whatsoever, so that they might be a part of this picture, a part of this uncountable throng that for eternity will rightly sing your praises as we do right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.